0: Chapter Twenty One, Part One Hope in Ramadi of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume One, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter Twenty One Hope in Ramadi, Page Six hundred One As the situation in Baghdad unraveled during mid-2006 and central Iraq began to descend into sectarian civil war, a far different development unfolded in Anbar province. After three years of increasing violence against the coalition and a growing consolidation of local power in Anbar by Al-Qaeda in Iraq, or AQI, a partnership between coalition troops and local Anbaris was about to challenge AQI's grip on the province. This partnership would take hold despite AQI's deep roots throughout the upper Euphrates River Valley, and it would involve coalition troops expanding their presence in the Ramadi area, a tactic that ran counter to multinational force Iraq's or MNFI's heavy emphasis on reducing the coalition's footprint across the entire country. AQI, the Coalition, and the Battle for the Ramadi Tribes Page 601 The Anbar People's Committee The December 2005 elections represented a stunning political turnaround in Ramadi, where voter turnout had exceeded 80%, an extraordinary difference from the mere 2% in the boycotted January election. The change represented a major success for Mohammed Mahmoud Latif, the Ramadi cleric and insurgent leader who had pushed for participation in the political process after judging that the January 2005 boycott had been a mistake. Latif had risked a great deal to promote voting in December, defying threats from Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and other rejectionist insurgents, and even using his 1920 Revolutionary Brigades fighters to ensure security at the polls. Having decided to vote in December, Anbaris faced the frustration of sending new representatives to the national parliament but still having to deal with a provincial government in Ramadi that almost no one in the province had voted for the previous January. Aiming to build on the December election's momentum, Latif immediately mounted a challenge to the members of the provincial government, especially the Iraqi Islamic Party, or IIP, which he and other Anbari tribal leaders viewed as suspicious carpetbaggers. On January 1, 2006, Latif and more than a dozen tribal sheikhs and Anbari notables formed the Anbar People's Committee through which they planned to represent the Anbari tribe's interests with the Iraqi government and to form the nucleus of provincial military and police forces that would be under Latif's direction. Latif's move was a bold one, but was at odds with Multinational Force West, or MNFW's, existing political strategy for the province. Viewing the unpopular provincial council as the province's legitimately elected representatives, MNFW had given IIP Governor Mamoun Sami Rashid al-Alwani its full backing. Though most of the provincial council had fled Ramadi during the violence of 2005 and early 2006, Alwani remained, riding to the governor's office each day in a coalition convoy and working under the protection of a company of marines in the frequently bombarded provincial government center. Throughout 2006, Alwani did little more than survive, though he did that rather well, escaping more than 30 attempts on his life. Still, As the representative of a political party that considered the tribes an anachronism, Alwani failed to win many allies among Anbaris through bravery alone. Seeing cooperation with the provincial government as essential, MNFW Commander Major General Richard C. Zilmer sought to alleviate the mutual disdain between influential Anbari tribes and the governor. Against this backdrop, Latif and his new committee offered themselves to Anbaris as an alternate government, an open rival to the IIP led government that Zilmer and MNFW were working hard to solidify. Latif and the Anbar People's Committee also challenged Zarqawi and his terrorist allies who had been fighting for more than a year to create an extremist Islamic emirate within Anbar. AQI's immediate response to the committee's creation was to issue fatwas calling for the death of every Ramadi sheikh participating in it, as well as to direct AQI and Ansar al Sunnah fighters to attack the recruits the sheikhs had begun to assemble. Working with Colonel John L. Gronski and 2nd Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard, the coalition unit responsible for Ramadi, Latif and the committee signed up 671 Anbaris at a police recruiting drive at a local glass factory in the first days of January. However, on the drive's final day, January 5th, an AQI suicide bomber killed 56 potential recruits and Lt. Col. Michael McLaughlin, Gronsky's tribal and police engagement officer. AQI followed up the bombing with assassinations of tribal leaders in the Anbar People's Committee, and by January 18, 2006, more than half of the dozen or so sheikhs who had formed the committee seventeen days earlier had been killed. AQI's murder of Sheikh Nasser Abd al-Karim Muklif al-Fadawi, a prominent leader of the al Bufahad tribe, prompted many of the remaining committee members to withdraw from public view. As the Anbar People's Committee's leaders went into hiding, AQI reinforced its fighters in the Ramadi area and focused its attacks on Latif's 1920 revolutionary brigades that had guarded polling places the previous month. By February 5th, AQI had defeated Latif's men and forced Latif himself to flee Ramadi to escape assassination. AQI's victory over Latif and other rivals in Ramadi began a gradual shift among Anbari's away from the optimism that had followed Operation Aid and toward a neutral stance between the insurgency and the coalition. Many Anbar residents and the leadership of local groups such as the 1920 Revolutionary Brigades sought to retaliate against AQI, but in each instance they were outfought and unable to oppose the group on their own. For some observers, the coalition's failure to recognize and bolster the Anbar People's Committee represented another squandered opportunity to leverage Anbari tribal power to reverse the dismal situation in the province. Major Benjamin Connibal, a marine intelligence officer in Anbar, considered the Anbar People's Committee an abortive awakening like that of the Albu Mahal and the Desert Protectors in Al-Qaim the previous year and the efforts by Major Adam Such in 2004. Operation Say-Aid had significantly degraded AQI in western Anbar, enough so that by the December elections, Arkawi and his followers were on their heels, and the Anbar People's Committee had posed a real political threat to AQI. By killing police recruits, slaughtering the committee's shakes, and renewing a campaign of violence throughout the rest of the winter, AQI had turned back the threat and emerged stronger than before. AQI retakes Ramadi With the Anbar People's Committee out of the way, AQI immediately enjoyed greater freedom of movement in Ramadi and increased its attacks against coalition and Iraqi government forces. During January 20th to the 21st, AQI and local fighters carried out two complex attacks against the Ramadi government center and nearby coalition bases using indirect fire, small arms fire, rocket-propelled grenades or RPG, and car bombs. AQI also stepped up its shadow governance throughout Anbar, offering compensation payments to Iraqis whose homes were damaged by the coalition, and offer 300 families accepted. Against this increased AQI activity, Gronsky's brigade's practice of conducting battalion-sized sweeps through Ramadi's neighborhoods and then returning to forward operating bases without leaving a large presence inside the city proved ineffective. A fact that the brigade's frustrated soldiers and commanders increasingly recognized. Even so, the practice was in line with the brigade's top-stated objective of quote, protecting the force, end quote, which, as the brigade explained in briefings to General George W. Casey Jr., it had ranked in priority above the objective of quote, defeating the insurgency. End quote, an approach that ran counter to MNFI's goals. AQI fighters routinely mounted attacks against the government center from the abandoned buildings that surrounded it. They also moved freely around the city, skirting coalition checkpoints using side roads through the Sufiya and second officer districts. AQI leaders even set up a command and control center inside the Al-Hajj Mosque in the city's Katana district, from which they oversaw attacks. They also issued coded orders using selected excerpts from the Quran recited over the mosque's loudspeakers. In their well-planned attacks, AQI commanders used operations orders and sand tables to rehearse their operations and synchronize massed attacks by up to 150 fighters, equivalent to an infantry company-sized attack. With limited intelligence on AQI's organization inside the city, Gronsky responded by employing forward observers from the 1st Battalion 506th Infantry Regiment to identify enemy targets that could be engaged by guided multiple launch rocket systems fired, from Camp Fallujah, a practice Gronsky discontinued when he concluded the indirect fire was doing more harm than good. The situation was a curious role reversal from most other coalition-held cities. In Ramadi, the coalition launched harassing fire against an insurgent force conducting coordinated battalion-sized maneuvers from bases inside the city. By April, AQI had also taken over the city's black market and become financially self-sufficient. In Ramadi alone, AQI grossed more than $500,000 per month on black market fuel sales, which, when combined with its extensive criminal enterprises, produced a monthly influx of several million dollars, more than enough to cover expenses, acquire real estate, and make significant inroads into the provincial economy. These and similar revenues elsewhere in Iraq also allowed Zarqawi to operate independently of the senior al-Qaeda leadership outside the country. The funds also kept fighters flowing into AQI's ranks. Coalition troops killed over 200 AQI fighters in March and April, but they were easy for Zarqawi to replace. By May 2006, with AQI's financial network in place, the starting salary for an AQI fighter in Ramadi was the equivalent of $1,000 per month. The next highest-paying insurgent group, Ansar al-Sunnah, paid far less at $250 a month. AQI also funded bonuses, $200 for a successful improvised explosive device or IED attack, $500 to $700 for destroying a high-mobility multipurpose wheeled vehicle or HMMWV, and $7,000 for shooting down a helicopter. In Fallujah, where AQI's presence was more contested and lacked Ramadi's financial sophistication, al-Qaeda fighters were paid between $190 and $380 per month. By the end of the spring, AQI considered much of central Ramadi and its outlying regions to be safe areas as well as the center of its activities across Iraq. No one is really in control of the city. As violence escalated in Ramadi in early 2006, Casey's plans to reduce the footprint of U.S. forces in Iraq collided with AQI's expansion in Anbar. In his deliberations over force levels with Secretary of Defense or SecDef Donald Rumsfeld in early March, Casey judged that the situation in Iraq had improved enough to allow for Gronsky's 2nd Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard to depart in June without another brigade to backfill it. Within days, however, Casey realized the situation in Ramadi had deteriorated with such speed that the plan to transition control of the city to Iraqi security forces upon 2nd Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard's departure might have become infeasible. On March 30th, he issued a warning order to Colonel Sean McFarland and his 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division to prepare to move from Tel Afar to Ramadi to replace 2nd Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard in June. McFarland's brigade had replaced Colonel H.R. McMaster's 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment in western Nineveh only the month before, but having decided in December 2005 to off-ramp two U.S. brigades, Casey had to cover the insurgent hotspot in Anbar by uncovering another insurgent hotspot in Nineveh. The violence in eastern Anbar touched Casey directly when mortar fire interrupted his April 13th meeting with Zilmer near Fallujah, killing two Marines and injuring 19 others. Following the incident, Casey questioned whether his Anbar consolidation plan could proceed without a major offensive in Ramadi. AQI's 11 complex attacks against the U.S. and Iraqi forces in the city between April 9th and 24th seemed to reinforce these doubts. Even so, as late as May 5th, Casey briefed Rumsfeld that he still intended to hand Ramadi over to the Iraqis instead of replacing 2nd Brigade 28th Infantry Division Pennsylvania National Guard with another American unit. However, within two weeks, the MNFI commander acknowledged the need for additional resources as well as a major operation to re-establish control of the city. Casey hoped the plan to transition bar could be kept on track by having 2nd Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard conduct a large operation in May, just before the brigade was scheduled to return home. On May 6th, Casey met with Gronsky, Zilmer, and Lieutenant General Peter Corelli to hear 2nd Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard's plan. He came away discouraged. The overall plan was, quote, not imaginative, end quote, the MNFI commander told his staff afterward, adding that the plan was being executed by a unit that lacked a good intelligence picture, had too few forces, and, quote, seemed to be distracted by their imminent departure, end quote. Quote, no one is really in control of the city right now, Casey observed. Not the government, not the terrorists, not the coalition. End quote. Casey had contemplated launching a deliberate two brigade operation in Ramadi by overlapping McFarlane's and Gronsky's brigades by a month, but the lateness of the decision to move 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division from Tel Afar made the idea impossible. Instead, to reinforce McFarland, who would leave one battalion behind in Tel Afar and already had sent another to hit months earlier, Casey called forward two battalions from 2nd Brigade 1st Armored Division, the brigade that had remained in Kuwait as part of the Theater Reserve. With the 1st Battalion, 506th Infantry Regiment remaining in East Ramadi and a Marine battalion still at the Ramadi Government Center, The shift in combat power to Ramadi was similar to MNFI's reinforcement of Baghdad for operation Together Forward 1. Despite Casey's assertion that no one controlled Ramadi, Zarqawi and AQI believed that they had the city firmly in their control. However, AQI leaders were aware that the coalition's posture in the city was about to change. Lieutenant Colonel Ronald Clark's 1st Battalion 506th Infantry Regiment received reports that insurgents within the city expected a Fallujah-like assault once 2nd Brigade 28th Infantry Division Pennsylvania National Guard departed. Although Clark knew an operation of that scale was not planned, he did nothing to correct the insurgents' fears. By late May, his unit learned that some AQI leaders were evacuating the city in anticipation of a coalition attack and many senior and mid-level AQI members gravitated to safe havens in the Jazeera area, the southern end of Lake Tartar, Haditha, and Syria. Zarqawi believed AQI's greatest vulnerability lay in the Ramadi area tribal network that opposed his organization and at times cooperated with the coalition. Accordingly, as McFarlane's troops conducted their two-week relocation from Nineveh, Zarqawi and his allies met in the Amaria neighborhood of West Baghdad to devise ways to win or control the tribes. They planned to recruit five to ten trusted members of each tribe to report on tribal cooperation with the coalition and gather information about coalition activities, with the ultimate goal of establishing insurgent safe havens throughout the Euphrates River Valley from Al-Qa'im to Ramadi. Meeting again at the Ibad al-Rahman Mosque in Ramadi, AQI leaders also decided to instruct low-level fighters to remain in Ramadi and defend against the new coalition offensive with IEDs and other indirect means, rather than fighting coalition troops head-on as they had done in Fallujah in 2004. Casey's guidance to McFarland, meanwhile, had been, quote, to fix Ramadi but don't do a Fallujah, end quote. An idea with which the brigade commander concurred. Quote, that was fine, because I didn't have the combat power to do a Fallujah, End quote. McFarland recalled. Quote, but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to fix Ramadi. When we got there, the enemy basically controlled the center part of the city. End quote. The insurgency had inflicted significant damage on 2nd Brigade 28th Infantry Division Pennsylvania National Guard, which had suffered 82 soldiers killed and another 611 wounded throughout their deployment. As Casey had judged the previous month, the Coalition's intelligence on Ramadi was poor. What was known was that insurgents controlled large swaths of the urban terrain, and Coalition troops were attacked an average of 20 times a day. Quote, The read that I got was pretty superficial, end quote, McFarland recalled later. There were large parts of the Ramadi area to which 2nd Brigade, 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard, quote, never went, end quote, he noted, adding that, quote, if they caught a lot of contact in an area, they just stopped going there, especially in downtown Ramadi. So there were big parts of the map, I kind of joked, that I said were labeled, here be monsters, end quote. 1st brigade 1st armored division takes over ramadi page 606 macfarland and 1st brigade 1st armored division officially relieved 2nd brigade 28th infantry division pennsylvania national guard on june 6th one day before aqi's top leader abu musab Zarqawi, was killed in a coalition airstrike in hibhib near balad It was a promising beginning for 1st Brigade 1st Armored Division's mission to expel Zarkawi's followers from the city, but the task remained a daunting one. The brigade was responsible for an enormous area stretching from Lake Tartar to Lake Habaniya in the south, about the size of the state of New Hampshire, with more than 600,000 inhabitants. McFarland's Brigade Combat Team, or BCT, was unlike any other in Iraq. With five maneuver battalions cut from four different brigade-level headquarters, it was nearly twice as large as the legacy brigades that commanders had favored for their additional manpower. The brigade also was unique in its jointness. MacFarland controlled a Marine infantry battalion, Marine, Navy, and Air Force officers served on his staff, CB and marine engineer platoons built his construction projects, and Navy Sea Air and Land Teams, or SEALs, embedded with his rifle platoons, earning the nickname, quote, Army SEALs, end quote. Various contingents of Special Operations Forces, or SOF, had moved to Ramadi to support the coming fight, but the majority of the manpower came from a SEAL task group that had moved its headquarters from Baghdad to Anbar in April 2006, Nearly doubling the special operations contingent that had returned to the province in 2005. To the SEAL task unit that directly supported him in Ramadi, McFarland gave a simple mission quote, kill insurgents. End quote. The situation among Ramadi's local security forces was far less encouraging. Only 120 Iraqi policemen served the city mostly in stations on the outskirts of town, and many of those were under insurgent influence. The Iraqi army units in Ramadi were among the least developed in Iraq, both in size and in training. Unlike in Tel Afar, McFarland had no viable Iraqi civilian authority to pair with, as Ramadi had neither a mayor nor a city council. Against this backdrop, McFarland moved quickly to exploit the leadership vacuum left by Zarqawi's death, A week after assuming control of the Ramadi area of operations, 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division launched a two battalion attack from the south across the old rail bridge in Tamim to seize a foothold in the city. Their concept for securing the city amounted to a tactical reversal of MNFI's campaign plan. While MNFI steadily was reducing its presence in Iraqi cities and concentrating its units on large forward operating bases, McFarland would move his units into Ramadi's neighborhoods, seizing and holding terrain as McMaster and Alford had done the year before in Tel Afar and Al-Qaim. McFarland knew intuitively that even his reinforced brigade could not conduct simultaneous attacks to clear Ramadi as had been done in Fallujah. Instead, he would have to fight his way into the city one neighborhood at a time and establish mutually supporting combat outposts. This incremental approach was driven in part by limitations in the amount of barrier materials and defensive fortifications available and in the numbers of engineers to emplace them. A single outpost would require 10,000 sandbags, miles of concertina wire, and truckloads of plywood, among other sundries of supplies. As his brigade re-established control on the ground, MacFarland would partner and co-locate with Iraqi Security Force or ISF units, rather than simply handing them responsibility for territory they could not secure on their own. By the end of June, MacFarland's brigade had established four new combat outposts within the city, as well as the heaviest troop density there since the 2003 invasion. The new coalition presence had its intended effect. Quote, Within 48 to 72 hours of us setting up a combat outpost, McFarland observed, insurgents would essentially impale themselves on it, and that is why we were able to kill so many, Even so, with only a brigade to secure a city much larger than Fallujah, McFarland's plan would hinge on growing capable ISF units that could, quote, thicken, end quote, the counterinsurgent ranks, something no unit in Anbar had been able to accomplish on a sustained basis. End of Chapter 21, Part 1 Hope in Ramadi Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021